You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Happiness 2, Objective Confidence by Jean Maroney. In my first talk on happiness, I surprised some people when I said that happiness is not an emotion. Rather, it's a durable positive state characterized by many positive emotions, but not an emotion per se. In this talk, we're going to do a deep dive into one of those positive emotions, specifically confidence. Our goal is not just to clarify what happiness is, what this durable state is, but also your power to bring it into your life. You know, happiness is not a luxury. It's a need of man. I quote Ayn Rand, the maintenance of life and the pursuit of happiness are not two separate issues. To hold one's own life as one's ultimate value and one's own happiness as one's highest purpose are two aspects of the same achievement. Existentially, the activity of pursuing rational goals is the activity of maintaining life. Psychologically, its reward, result, reward, and concomitant is an emotional state of happiness. It is by experiencing happiness that one lives one's life in any year, hour, year, or the whole of it. Unquote. She sums this up in her definition of happiness. Happiness is this, that state of consciousness which proceeds from the achievement of one's values. It comes from the achievement of one's values, not a value. You need to consistently achieve your values to be happy. This doesn't mean you feel positive emotions 100% of the time. Life is inherently challenging. You will feel negative emotions when bad things happen. But how much time you spend in that negative state depends more on how you react to it than what caused it. In a free society, with the right tools, say 80% of the time you can be feeling positive, value-oriented emotions. Now, some of these are triggered by a positive evaluation of your past, in whole or in part, that would be pride. Some of them are triggered by a contemplation of the values all around you, and or your achievements, that would be love and joy. And some of these positive emotions are triggered by your awareness of goals you believe you can achieve. That's confidence. That's what we're going to talk about today. Confidence, not optimism. Confidence is the emotion that proceeds from the conclusion that you have sufficient skill that your current or proposed effort will result in success. Your skill, your effort, your success. Confidence is not about whether you succeed per se, or rather your expectations are that you're going to succeed per se. It's about you and your skill. This makes a big difference. Suppose you were optimistic that your supervisor would give you a raise. Just optimistic, not confident. You will feel many positive emotions, excitement, 
hope, eagerness. What happens if you don't get it? Disappointment, frustration, maybe anger if you think he was unjust, maybe despair if you thought this was your only hope for increasing your income, maybe or getting you out of a financial bind. Once your expectations are dashed, optimism is gone. It's smashed by the events. In contrast, if you had confidence going into that meeting with your boss, in, in place of or in addition to your optimism, your confidence would mitigate this crash substantially. Confidence is about you and what you have direct control over. You don't have direct control over whether your boss gives you a raise. So what can you be confident about going into that meeting? You can be confident that your services are worth more money. You can be confident that you could explain the objective evidence that, you're, that supported that conclusion. You could be confident that if this particular person wasn't persuaded or didn't have the resources to give you a raise, you could find someone else who would. And you'd be confident that you would continue to pursue this goal until, in fact, you were being paid what you were worth. In other words, you'd be counting on your agency, not his decision. You would continue to pursue this goal until you'd be prepared. You'd be prepared for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And this makes all of the difference when things don't turn out as you were hoping they were going to turn out. If you don't get the raise, you're still going to be disappointed. Of course. You'd prefer to increase your income the easy way. Get paid more now for the same job. It's a lot less work. But in addition to being disappointed, and in addition to being disappointed, you might feel frustrated. If you weren't able to convince your supervisor of your worthiness, or if you weren't able to convince him of the need to find the money to keep you, that might be frustrating. But on the other hand, you might be touched if he sees your point of view, but he explains that he really cannot give you a raise. If he was contemptuous of what you said, and he dismissed your request, you would feel justifiably angry. But this would increase your desire to initiate the next phase of the project, i.e., sending out your resume and finding someone else who would be willing to pay you what you're worth. You were already committed to more effort. That's part of what you built your confidence on. Your boss, by rejecting you inadvertently, reinforced your determination. So there may still be some negative feelings, they may be mitigated, but what you won't feel is despair. Regardless of how the conversation goes, you will continue to feel confident that you will eventually be paid what you're worth. You'll know that this person turning you down doesn't change the basic situation. 
you are going to fight for your values. And you also wouldn't feel fear at this point because you wouldn't be relying on someone else's actions to get your life in order. You would have already, suppose your finances were in peril and you needed the raise because that was, or you wanted the raise because that is what would really make a difference and solve all your financial problems. In order to get to confidence, you wouldn't have needed to address that threat in advance. You would have needed to see what your other options are because that is what would get you to a place of confidence. Desperation makes any conversation go sideways. You can't go into a discussion with your boss feeling desperate. It will not work. One of the most important steps in preparing for a difficult conversation is making sure you are okay with whatever happens, that you can handle it. That is an indispensable source of confidence. So you see, there's a big difference in whether you go into that conversation with just, oh, I think I'm going to get a raise, versus I'm confident, I'm confident that this is the right thing to do to try to get myself paid the amount that I'm worth. Now, I kind of smuggled in the whole point of the class in that. The reason that this example works is that the confidence is earned. It is based on having prepared for the conversation in such a way that you are set up to succeed, maybe immediately, but definitely eventually. My entire argument rests on the idea that your confidence needs to be based on objective evidence, not vanity. If your expectation is based on some false view of yourself, when reality intrudes, you are going to crash. That is a lot worse than undue optimism. And that's why this talk is called Objective Confidence. Now, it doesn't really make sense because confidence is an emotion. What I mean by that, it's a shorthand for confidence that is based on an objective assessment that you have sufficient skill that your current or proposed effort will result in success. That's what you need. You need an objective assessment that this is the case. What justifies that conclusion? How do you know you have enough skill? How do you know how much effort it will take? Especially if you have a very ambitious goal that involves significant risks, say starting a business. Even in mundane situations, like asking your boss for a raise, how do you make predictions when you don't control other people's behavior? You're not omniscient. Your judgment is not infallible. Well, the answer, of course, is you need to apply the objectivist ethics and epistemology. This is why we're here. Ayn Rand solved this problem. Let me just give you a really quick abstract overview of how this works, and then we'll dig into some more details. The objectivist ethics helps you understand your own values, 
It helps you see values in the world. It helps you make effective judgments about what's important. As a result, if you take the objectivist ethics seriously, you have the experience of living in the benevolent universe. You all know that term. Leonard Peikoff has this beautiful passage about it. This is what he says in Opark, quote, Benevolence in this context is not a synonym for kindness. It does not mean that the universe cares about man or wishes to help him. The universe has no desires. It simply is. Man must care about and adapt to it, not the other way around. That's what you're doing when you're preparing for a meeting with your boss. You're adapting to the facts. If he does adapt to it, this is continuing the quote, however, then the universe is benevolent in another sense, auspicious to human life. Interjection here. I think of this as there are many ways to achieve your values. Contingency plans is one of the ways that you maintain this benevolent universe premise because you see you can get your values in many different ways. Back to Dr. Peikoff. If a man does recognize and adhere to reality, then he can achieve his values in reality. He can, and other things being equal, he will. For the moral man, failures, though possible, are an exception to the rule. The rule is success. The state of consciousness to be fought for and expected is happiness." Unquote. And with respect to this talk, fighting for your happiness means putting in the work in advance to make sure you don't crash and burn if your boss says no. The way I think of it as a summary is the objectivist ethics helps you maintain a value orientation. You stay focused on the values available to you instead of the threats that you might need to run away from. You see threats only as obstacles to your values, not as things that affect you directly. Obviously, that's very important to confidence. Now, the objectivist epistemology helps you with the other part of the problem. It helps you to understand the world around you. It helps you think clearly about complex issues such as social relationships, your own psychology. It helps you make effective judgments about what is true or false or arbitrary. When you take the objectivist epistemology seriously, you can predict your own future in principle. What you need for confidence is to reach objective conclusion about, uh, conclusions about whether your effort will pay off. And that takes work, but we have tools for that. It takes thinking, but we've got logic. It takes understanding your values. We have logic and we have ethics. Confidence, objective confidence, is earned through this kind of mental effort. We're going to talk about, uh, I, I think, in trying to break this down and see how important this is, the message I want to get across is that your understanding of philosophy is critical to your own happiness. It really shows up in this slice of happiness where you're trying to predict your future. 
it really shows up here because this is where the idea that you're the agent of your happiness really comes to the front. And I hope that you're going to take from what we talk about that you can always start from where you are right now with the knowledge and skills and values that you have to fight for your values with confidence. Most of the work for that is before you take action. Most of the work for that is preparation. So we're going to spend most of the rest of our time on what do you need before you take action so that you have certainty that your effort is going to pay off. And then I'll talk a little bit less about what you need to do to, make, to contribute to that during action and afterwards. So what do you need to do before you take action? I think you need to be objective about whether you're, about your motivation. By your motivation, I mean the value, your value, not some theoretical value, your value, that is primarily causing your impulse to take this action. Now, elsewhere I've argued that you need motivation to act, that you should not force yourself. But you need to vet those impulses. You know, this is like just going by impulse is basically going by emotion is going to destroy you. You need impulses, but you need to make sure they are coming from a rational base. You need to make sure you know the real cause, that there's no hidden agenda. If, there, if you don't actually know why you're doing something, you get into all such sorts of trouble. So, for example, suppose when you asked for a raise, you claimed it was just about the money, but what you really wanted was you wanted your supervisor to show you how much he valued your contributions to the company. What if he gave you the raise but only grudgingly? You might achieve your stated goal, but instead of feeling joy, you'll feel frustration because you didn't achieve the value you were actually after. So much for creating an enduring state of happiness. It can't be done if you don't know your motivation. So emotions may or may not reflect your best judgment, and you need to know where they come from. Sometimes you don't know your real motivation because you haven't even just looked at it. You've only got a superficial understanding. Sometimes your reasons seem perfectly logical and you're surprised that you're not motivated to follow through on them. Or you're surprised that you're motivated to do something else, which is not what you thought you should be doing. You know, Ayn Rand has this uh, important section on rationality in the Objectivist Ethics. She says, one must never enact a cause without assuming full responsibility for its effects. That one must never act like a zombie, i.e., without knowing one's purposes and motives. That one must never make any decisions, form any convictions, or seek any values out of context, apart from or against the total integrated sum of one's knowledge, unquote. You need to know if there's some question about your motive, you need to get to the bottom of it. You need a process to get to the bottom of it. And I've got a sort of, sort of a three-step process. The first one is the big one. If you only remember one thing, 
from this entire lecture, this is the thing to remember. Vet your conscious reason for your action. How many words? Vet your conscious reason for your action. That's seven words. Vet your reason. That's three words. That's better. You don't do this out of paranoia. It's not that you're afraid your emotions are going to lead you astray. This is just due diligence. You want to see if there's any evidence your motivation is not what you think it was. And the first step is very obvious. You ask yourself, what is my reason for taking this action? It's not complicated. Now, if you don't have a reason, like you say, uh, buh, buh, uh, uh, I don't know, that is a very good indicator that there is a distortion here and there's some motivation you definitely need to understand. But even if you have a conscious reason, you, it, although that's a good start, you need to make sure it passes the smell test. See, normally your conscious reason is going to be completely rational. So, for example, it is completely rational to want to raise because you deserve to be rewarded justly for your services. But sometimes, when you're honest with yourself, you're surprised to uncover, in effect, a dubious reason for taking your action. So suppose you wanted to the raise because you wanted to prove that you're really good enough. Now, how, how, does that smell to anybody? Everybody raise your hand. No amount of praise or money can prove to you that you're good enough. That's actually something you need to figure out for yourself. There's a distortion somewhere. So, just by looking, you know, Gina Gorland talks about self-honesty. Just by looking at your reason and looking at kind of straight, you can often find something fishy. And don't panic when this happens. It's no big deal. Uncovering a distortion is a good thing. It will help you make your motivation objective. That's the first part. Even if you think it makes sense and it's not fishy, it still could be a rationalization. Even if it sounds good, it could be a rationalization. Rationalizations always sound really good. So you need to do a little bit more. So you need to not just ask yourself what's the reason and make sure it makes sense. You need to then vet it by introspecting all of the emotions you have around this action. What do you feel about, say, asking for a raise and why do you feel it? You want to shine a light on anything around the fringes that might be contributing to this impulse. Now you can kind of do this ad hoc. Just Ask yourself the question, you know, I've got a lot of tools, but I'll tell you, the intention and the desire to be honest with yourself and see, is there anything else going on here? That will get you far. If you want a systematic process, what I recommend is that you go through all of the basic families of emotions. There are only eight, that's my categories. Ask yourself why you might be feeling each one. So, for example, in the getting the raise example, it might be, you'd start so you might say, why might I be feeling anger? Because I should have gotten a raise earlier. 
Why might I be feeling gratitude? Because my husband helped me figure out the way to ask for this. Anger and gratitude is one family. Or suppose you go to the next family. Why might I be feeling fear? Because he might blow up at me. Why might I be feeling relief? Because I'm finally taking action after having put this off so long. Fear and relief is another family. Now, most of that may be in a line with what you're thinking, but like, he might blow up at me. If you want to have confidence, you need to have actually figured out how you're going to deal with if he blows up at you. That's one of the reasons that you need to be, pay attention to these things in the fringes. Now, that's just two of the families of basic emotions. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. In my free Thinking Direction Starter Kit, I introduce the eight basic families of emotions. And if you're interested in a step-by-step, -step, it's in my Thinker's Toolkit. But as I said, you can do this with common sense. And if you learn the tools, then you can also do it fairly quickly in real situations. Okay, gotta look at what are the emotions around the fringes, figure out where they're coming from. What you're doing by this process is making conscious all of the values that you are peripherally aware of at this moment. As Ayn Rand says, you cannot do better than your own mind. Right? You cannot take into account things that you don't know. You can't take into account things that are so repressed they never come to mind. But if you ignore the quieter emotions and the quieter thoughts at the fringes, you are not doing your conscious best to make sure that you know the real reason for taking this action. I really want to stress this. Knowing the real reason for why you're taking this action makes all the difference to your happiness. This came up in my launch program this spring. One of our members thought his goal was to get a new job. But when he got clear on his motivation, he realized what he really wanted was just decision-making control over his projects, and he could probably get that in his current job. Which would be a lot easier. He spent the rest of his time in the launch figuring out how to propose a particular new role for him at his company, and he just emailed me. He finally got a chance, he brought his preparation, he talked to his boss, he got the new job, his boss was entirely on board with it. If he hadn't figured that out, who says his next job would be any better? If you don't know what you want, you cannot get it. You cannot be selfish unless you really do know your motivation. Would he have even known what to look for when he interviewed? Okay, so this is, this is the most important thing. You need to know your reasons. Okay. Know the actual reason for your action. I wish that was all you needed. Because sometimes, knowing your real reason and having it be a darn good reason is not enough to translate into the motivation to act. And this is another place where confidence can really give you an indicator of something that can help. In this case, it almost always means that the action you need to take doesn't have any short-term payoff. So let's take another version of this example of looking for a new job. Suppose the boss denied your raise 
and you concluded you should look elsewhere. So you decided that what you should do is redo your resume and post it to a job board. That's the logical first step. And then after that, you could go and give it to your friends and you know, talk to headhunters and various other things. So if you're focused on doing the resume and posting to a job board, will you have a desire to get to work on that resume? Not necessarily. Why not? Because what's going to happen after you post your resume to the job board? That's right, absolutely nothing. There's not going to be any obvious payoff from posting your resume to the job board. This happens all the time, actually. You break down a, a long-term goal into tasks that you can do that all make sense, that you can do, and then you're completely unmotivated to do the first one on the list. The logic can be impeccable. After all, it, once you have your resume done, it doesn't hurt to post it to the site, and it's a you know, specific, measurable, achievable, timely, realistic, timely goal. It's a logical first step, but it doesn't take into account the motivational side. Putting together a new resume is a lot of work. It takes a lot of effort. You know, you might put in that effort, post to the job board, and then never do anything else with it, and will you get any results? If you stopped with the job board, would you get any payoff for that effort you put in? No. Has that ever happened to anybody? Yes. Now, the way that many people deal with this conundrum is they double down. They say, I am determined to do this, and they psych themselves up to just keep going until, you know, they put in more and more time until they suddenly get a result. They just psych themselves through that short-term period. And this approach can be used sparingly. You can stay value-focused, and you do this sparingly. But it, what it means is that your most important, most meaningful, most long-range projects can also be the ones that are least rewarding on a day-to-day -day basis. That is not conducive to happiness. That is not conducive to achieving your ambitious goals. What I recommend that you do systematically is that you change up your plan. You actually rethink how you're going to go to the goal through some other process that actually does get a short-term benefit. Because if you have certainty that your short-term effort is going to pay off, what emotion will you have? Confidence? Okay, we'll try that again. If you have certainty that your short-term effort will pay off, what emotion will you have? Confidence! Yes! And is confidence motivating? Yes! Okay, great. You're with me, yay. Now, this takes a little bit of creativity. But if you're clear on the need for motivation, because you're not on board with forcing yourself or depriving yourself, it is worth a little bit more thinking. What you need to do is to figure out a variation on that short-term goal. You know, 
there are many ways to cook an egg. And that's what you need. You need a different way to cook this egg. So for example, if we go back to the case of creating the resume and posting it to a job board, suppose you change the order. Instead, you set your initial goal to get feedback on my draft resume from one friend. First of all, this makes the task a lot easier. Is it more likely you'll do an easier task? Yes? Second of all, is that definitely within your control? Yes, you can just, I mean, it could be a bad draft. You talk with your friend, your friend likes you. Your friend won't be too mean, hopefully. Will there be a payoff? Yes, your, your friend will actually give you some feedback. You will get knowledge, you will get information, you will get some ideas about how you could make it better. You'll also get some momentum on your job search because you'll have an observable result with, you know, a small, relatively small amount of effort observable result. And if you do this two or three times with your draft resume, it may turn out that one of your friends knows the job for you and you never have to do the other version of the resume. But this is, this is the trick. I want to make sure you understand the trick. The trick is the goal is to get a new job. The payoff of this step is not to get a job. The payoff is knowledge, momentum, maybe connection with your friends. It's something that you can actually get with this step. It's the step is logically related to the goal, but the value you get from this step is somewhat independent, and you will get it if you take this step, even if you stop work on the goal. Even if you stop work on the goal, which means that you put in that first effort. Now, I mean, this is a big topic. How to do this? It's a big topic, but you get, the, you get the idea of what this is? Great. I call this self-direction. This is the alternative to self-discipline, which is just make yourself do it, and self-indulgence, which is just wait till the spirit moves you. What you do is you rethink what's the step till you get one that you can actually see a payoff from the short-term action. Because if you can see a payoff, even if you don't totally feel like it, if you're going to get a payoff in like two hours, you can get yourself to sit down and do it. Okay. We went down to practical. I want to go back up to theoretical again. This entire line of reasoning is a direct application of the objectivist ethics and epistemology. Is that obvious to you guys? This is... The way I came up with this is by applying objectivism. So let's just, let's just make that connection. It's an application of ethics because in principle, all living action needs to pay off in values gained. All living action needs to pay off in values gained. There's, only, there's the only way to sustain life. If you exert significant effort with no payoff, you weaken your capacity to act. You use up your emotional and physical and financial reserves. You become at risk for, you know, total failure. This is true of all living organisms. You know, of course, we're special because we can see long range. We can see long range opportunities. 
But in order to pursue them, we need to make sure that we have the resources over the long haul. And the way you do this is you set up a virtuous cycle where you are gaining values as you go. On a small scale, this means that every, there's some kind of payoff in every task you undertake. And by a task, this is, I use this, this is a term of art. A task is something that you can do in one setting, sitting, which means something that takes less than two to three hours. Having tasks pay off is part of the way you get joy in every day of your life. When you rethink the way that you design your tasks so that they pay off every couple of hours, every couple of hours you have a success, the joy of achievement follows directly. And you see, it's the concept of confidence that gives us the idea that we need to have efficacy, we need to actually see that our effort is going to pay off, that leads to a strategic way of going about pursuing your goals. That's the ethical side. The epistemological side. This is an application of Ayn Rand's view of certainty. Right? There's a very relevant discussion of certainty in Harry Binswanger's book, How We Know. At my request a few years ago, he condensed his point as follows. He says, Certainty denotes confidence that one can act on a conclusion without doubt, without needing further deliberation or investigation. Unquote. So you see, certainty has to do with knowing enough that this step should be taken. You don't need to know everything. Certainty concerns action. It concerns having established that this is the step I should take. And you know what that means? That certainty and confidence are completely interrelated. It means that you have shown yourself that this step you're taking is going to pay off. You are logically convinced this effort you're going to put in is going to pay off. That's what, the, that's what you need for certainty for action? From an ethical point of view, from an epistemological point of view, that is possible because certainty is contextual. And you can control what action you're going to do. This is how you can be certain about the future. By understanding that certainty is contextual. You don't have to predict everything. You need to predict the part that you can predict. So, you know, there are managers who are really excellent planners. They can plan a six-month project and pretty much nail it. They have a special expertise, a special skill, lots of experience. You don't have to stop everything and learn management skills to be able to have confidence. You finesse this by bringing the prediction closer to home. You, meaning every single person in this room, can make reasonable predictions about what you can get done in 30 or 60 minutes. Am I right? 
know, reasonable, not crazy predictions, right? I mean, you may not be able to make a good prediction about what you can get done in a month, but 30 or 60 minutes, you can. Well, everyone has a different skill. You use, you use what your skill level is to find where you need to zero in, where you can get certainty that your, pay, your effort will pay off. Now, this prediction of what you can get done, right, of, of that your effort will pay off, this is another logical conclusion. This is just like the reason for your uh, doing this in the first place. This needs to pass all of the same logical tests that the reason does, right? It needs, you need to give it the smell test. I mean, does it look basically reasonable? Like if you say, well, in half an hour, I think I can uh, finish all of that work that I didn't do Friday when I was out sick. No, I don't think so. Uh, if you go and you look at all the emotions around the edge, you can find out a lot of things. You can get out other information that may be relevant to figuring out what is a reasonable prediction here. When you vet your predictions by giving contrary motion, motivation a fair hearing, you often realize you're being wildly optimistic about what you can do. But if you have this guidance of, well, then I need to switch up the task to what I can do in a defined amount of time, you can still build in a payoff. You might be disappointed you can't do as much as you hoped you could do, but you can still have confidence, progress, positive motivation. You know, does everybody get this? You need to know not just the reason for your conclusion, you need to make a prediction that you think is legitimate, that you are certain that this effort will pay off. And you bring it in closer in order to do that. Now, this process is not going to make you infallible, but it has a very important consequence. It is... It's going to put you into a position of power, especially... You know what? Let me start that paragraph again, because I looked up at the wrong time. This process doesn't make you infallible, but it does mean that if you discover you were mistaken, because you can be certain and wrong, right? You can be certain and wrong. Everybody knows that from Opar. You're in a position of power. And this is why confidence requires not just the preparation before, but also your active participation during action and after action. If you want to be, maintain your confidence, build your confidence, maintain your ha sustain your happiness, you need to do work while taking action and afterwards. I'm going to be brief on this, okay? During action, you need to monitor your progress. Okay, this is not news, but the point is, you need to keep an eye out for new information that pops up that you didn't take into account when you were vetting your reason and when you were vetting your prediction. There's nothing wrong with making a mistaken prediction, but if you are two hours into a task that was supposed to take half an hour, you kind of need to look at that. There are some facts that need to be taken into account, and you need to rethink this. If you don't intervene to adjust, what emotions will follow? 
not confidence. That evaporated when the new data was ignored because you know that you're not certain that this is going to pay off. The emotions you're going to feel if you do not monitor and deal with new information that comes up are frustration, fear, guilt. All of these need to be checked out. They are actually leads to information that you need to factor into what you're going to do. I think one of the things that frustrates people in this situation, this kind of situation, is that it seems like you're not in control of your own mind, right? You make a prediction, you think what you know what your values are, and then you have these, you know, things come up that are different. And it turns out you didn't know what you could do, or you didn't know that this was important, or you didn't have uh, the skill to do it. Part of the thing you get by monitoring your progress is you develop a better self-understanding. This is also a big topic, but the short version is you need to have an objective assessment of your knowledge. What do you know? What don't you know? There's no shame in being ignorant, but if you pretend that you know things you don't know, you get in trouble. You need to know what your uh, skills are. You need to know how, how many emails can you get through in an hour. I mean... It's fine if you can only get through a certain number. It's if you think that it's more than that, or, you, or if you, even if you underestimate it. That's what's going to get you in trouble. And you need to know your motivation. You need to know, well, do you have some baggage that gets in the way? Well, if you do, you need to, you need to be on the alert for that and be able to recover for that. And I think part of the point here is to be completely matter-of-fact about that. It doesn't matter that you aren't, you know, quote-unquote perfect, or you don't have all the skills in the world. What matters is you know what you can do, and then you set what you're going to do within the capability. There's no shame in not being perfect. And this is what, I, this is what self-understanding is. It's an objective grasp of the present state of your psychology including these kinds of stored content, knowledge, values, knowledge, motivation, and skill. And that's what's needed to be able to break things down. You know, self-understanding is worth every minute that you put into it. It's worth it because it's an investment in your ability to manage your life. I mean, it's not the only value, Let me not go off on that tangent. But this is the thing that will really pay off in confidence that you can do more because you will know you'll be a better judge of what you can do. You can judge longer range than the next half hour. You can judge the next day or the next week or whatever it is. Now, I'd kind of like to end the talk here, but I want to say at least something about mistakes, setbacks, and failures. And I'm just going to say, this is just more information. And it's very important to be philosophical about them. 
You know, some are inevitable. You're not, you're not omniscient. You're not infallible. There will be things that happen that are out of your control. And when, when this happens, the most important thing you need is you need a process to help you get back into a value-oriented mindset. The one that I recommend in the Thinking Lab is basically activating a self-esteem context, uh, which is... Easier, it, which is easier to do than you would think. This is very important when you discover you made a mistake because just because you made a mistake doesn't mean you're a bad person or you're not good or you're not smart or any of these other things. You need to be able to not jump into self-criticism. But there's also a need for this when actually it was not your fault because you're still responsible for your results even if it's not your fault that you didn't get them, in the sense that you want to learn from this. This is new information. Like, suppose that you didn't get your goal because someone said they were going to do something for you, and then they didn't do it. That's not my fault. Okay, so the first time, you need, first time you say, okay, gee, I didn't factor in that this person might not be as reliable as I thought. Second time, you talk to them and say, gee, you know, I thought you were going to, do this, and you decide what are you, how are you going to handle this in the future. The 20th time, you, don't, you stop counting on them. You know, there's new information of whatever the failure is that needs to then be factored into all of your context for making the next decision. And it doesn't mean that you stop talking to this person, but it does mean that you don't just, you know, blame the other person and... Uh, decide that it's, it, I think I got the grammar wrong there. It, it, it does mean that you need to be actually thinking about what you're counting on and whether that's reasonable. And, you know, by this method, you wind up clarifying your relationships and clarifying, you know, how, you know, your company works and whether this happens and the other thing. Learning from experience is how knowledge grows. You know, you pursue your values with all your might, and along the way, you have new experiences, and you call those for relevant information. And over time, you develop a large body of knowledge relevant to your particular values. And that knowledge you use to be able to figure out steps you can take that are going to pay off and are going to lead you to success. You know, to be happy, to really maintain a sustained, positive, emotional state, you need confidence that you can achieve your goals. It's not an optional nice-to-have. It's not a bonus. It is a critical source of motivation needed for you to pursue ambitious goals. It is something that you can create for yourself by means of doing the work to become certain that your effort, present or contemplated, will pay off. You can always start from where you are. You have specific knowledge about how to achieve your goals. 
you have specific skills, problem-solving skills, decision-making skills, communication skills, you have a value hierarchy that you have been growing since you were born. You've been gaining and keeping values your whole life. What I hope you'll take from this talk is that from that basis of knowledge and values and skills, you can set goals, break them down, and act with confidence, and that this will contribute to a happy life. That's what I wish for you. Thank you. Questions? Thank you for your talk and for the work you do. Thank you. I think uh, what you do, which is to raise the ambitions of others, is one of the most impactful things one can do with one's life. So thank you for doing that. Thanks. Imagine you wanted to create a system that would allow people to achieve their goals with confidence and so on and so forth. So first, you would need to first figure out what goals to pick, assuming they don't know. And then second, you would need to break them down, like you said, that every step has a, an, an, an immediate, like a short-term payoff so they could continue doing that. How would you design such system? Okay, so I'm not sure why you use the word system, but this is for an individual to be happy, needs to know their goals, right? Right? And the person needs the skill to be able to identify a goal and then figure out what is the step to take now that's definitely going to move me toward that goal. It, are, we in a, are we in agreement here as to what we're trying to do? Yes, but I say system because uh, something that could be used to, for, millions, for like millions of people, not just like individually. Ah, that's what so we have a philosophical disagreement here. So I have such a system that can be used by individuals. I gave a, was it 12 lecture class on rational goal setting that ended a couple months ago? And I've worked out the details on this. This is, a, this is volitional. This takes individual effort. There's nothing you can do that's going to make other people do this. Now, what can you do? You can inspire people. I mean, that I do think, I appreciate that you, you, basically what you said is that I give inspiration for people to raise their game, and that's important. But as far as actual methodology for them to do it, they need to initiate the effort. They need to be selfish. Because, I mean, that's part of what comes out of the rational goal setting is figuring out what is actually in your rational self-interest is not a no-brainer. It's not a no-brainer. It's your values. Your values are highly individual. Someone else can't figure it out for you. So are we, can we leave it at that for now? Is that okay? Thank you. Okay. All right, great. Next. Hey, um, I had two questions um, that are kind of related about the framework that you're um, setting out here. Um, because, so one thing I found interesting is that I really think it's the way you've broken it down is very helpful. Thank you. Um, uh, in terms of like the different, you know, focusing on motivation, focusing on progress, focusing on uh, feedback. But the thing that is confusing to me as I was thinking more about it is it does seem that often, uh, you know, feedback is required like throughout the process. 
And oftentimes, uh, revisiting motivations is required throughout the process. So, for example, I think about uh, when I have friendships over time. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, the initial motivation for the friendship is lost, but I have to find new ways of engaging. Or, or sometimes I move on from the friendship, but right. oftentimes I found new grounds for the friendship yes. as we change as people over time. Yes. So that, That's why you need to monitor, right? Is that, so you would just say that's part of monitoring. And then I guess, is, does that affect like the way you're putting it as before, during, and after? Or okay, why do you right. so that way? Yeah. The, I kind of set this up around pursuing a goal. But so let's take a case that's more ongoing, like you're having a relationship with someone. And so I'm not sure confidence comes up there, but let's just talk about the happiness issue. So as you're, like you say, you get in the habit of seeing someone once a week. And at a certain point, you notice, gee, I'm not enjoying this as much as I thought I was. Right? That's the kind of thing you're talking about. Yeah. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. That would be an alarm. I would say any conflict, any emotional conflict is an alert that there is something that you don't, that is relevant. There's some value at stake. You, you don't know exactly what it is as a result of the conflict, but there's, it's not clear where your selfish interest lies, and that needs to be introspected. And if you don't do that, you'll actually start feeling conflict. You won't actually enjoy the time with your friend. This is part of the evidence that you need to, in, you need to intervene, because that is not going to be a positive part of your life. So I would put that under the general heading of like in the previous, in the first talk, I talked about um, needing to take conflict very seriously and get back to serenity, and that's where you re-clarify your values. That, that's very helpful, thanks. And then just really quickly, the other part of my question, which is kind of a segue to that, which uh, is that, would you agree that there's also an important part of objectivity of um, sort of taking ownership of your successes Yes. That's crucial for confidence too, right? Because, yes. you know, you could say, well, you have the skill to do something, but if you don't see yourself, if you don't see the successes resulting from your skill, that might right. not even lead to confidence because you might think, well, I'm, you know, right. maybe I am building some skills, but right. am I really the one authoring my success and can I take right. ownership for so it? So this is part of actually how you clarify your values oh. and clarify your knowledge is celebration. I think celebration is something you can put in. That's something you can always do in the present which is like identify the values around you and the things that you've gotten. So that will lead to love and joy. You know, you can't, confidence is not the only thing that you need for happiness. You need them all. But we were just, we were focusing on the future orientation. That's the past, more of the past orientation, also very important. Good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Remember to subscribe wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.